Well, we come to the 10th plague this morning in our travel through Exodus, and our scripture reading will be from Exodus 12, 29 through 51. I invite you to follow along, and if you do not have a Bible, please feel free to use one of the red pew Bibles in front of you. Again, Exodus 12, 29 through 51. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And also, bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise, they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had bought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now was the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his household circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, as we turn now to your word, pray that you would teach our hearts, grow us, and conform us more and more to the likeness of Jesus. Speak to each of us sinners as we sit under it, and be with me a sinner as I seek to proclaim it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've been with us the last few months as we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, this is really the first big turning point in that book. 
Everything up to this point has been leading up to this moment where Israel is delivered from Egypt. This is literally the exodus that we read about in our chapter this morning. And because this passage stands in that way as a climax, we see several themes that have kind of arisen as we've worked through the book of Exodus all kind of come together here. Themes of God's judgment and God's victory and of our freedom. And so this morning, we're not going to do anything fancy with the text. What I want us to do is just start at the beginning and just discuss those themes as we work through it. And I don't know that this story needs a lot more introduction than that, so let's just go ahead and dive in. Our story starts in what we read with God's judgment. With God's judgment. God has brought these plagues against Egypt, and he threatens this last plague, the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh's heart is still hard, and he refuses to let Israel go. And so God has Israel celebrate the Passover first, which we talked about last week, as this mark that they need the Lord's mercy to pass over them as this judgment comes. And then after that buildup, the plague comes in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock and Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. So Old Testament stories tend to be sparse in details and not prone to flowery descriptions. But even in the midst of that very matter-of-fact telling of the thing, you can feel the terror of that event. That God comes, and as he said, he kills all the firstborn of Egypt. Uh, Just a note, the Hebrew word is clearly, it's firstborn children. Some people are like, well, I didn't like Pharaoh himself die, since he presumably is the firstborn. But, um, But that doesn't really soften the story. In fact, it kind of makes it worse, right? Like all of you that are parents know this is the kind of thing that you... Uh, have nightmares about. It says there's a great cry in Egypt and the sound of weeping parents filtering out of houses and onto the streets. This is not the place that I would choose to start the sermon this morning because this is hard. Uh, It's really challenging for a lot of us. And so let's pause before we keep going with the story and just talk about that. As I said, we were going to last week. There are a few things that we need to recognize that help this judgment make sense. But right up front, we should say that these things are not not going to make it hard, right? This is a challenging thing that God does. But that said, there are some things to keep in mind. First of all, it's important to recognize that there is a proportionality to this judgment within the book of Exodus, which is to say that God is not just doing this out of thin air. If you remember back in Exodus 1, the very first text that we read, when Egypt is oppressing Israel, Pharaoh, then it would have been the father of this current Pharaoh, but this Pharaoh has continued in his tyranny. But Pharaoh orders the genocide of baby Hebrew boys to try to control their population. Here's the command back in Exodus 1 that he gives. He says to the Hebrew midwives, he says, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women... And see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So Pharaoh orders the murder of the sons of Israel. 
and now the sons of Egypt are being taken in judgment. There is a logic in that, even though it is a challenging one. And then second, a lot of us, I think, wrestle with this story because it's not just Pharaoh who loses his firstborn son, but it's all the people of Egypt, right? It, is, um, it, it emphasizes even down to the livestock. And that doesn't seem fair to us, right? Because we feel like Pharaoh's the particularly hard-hearted one. Um, but it's important to recognize when we say that, that um, we in our world have this deeply individualistic way of thinking about ourselves. That I am just this individual and I'm not really a part of anything else. And the Bible does speak to us it, as individuals, but it also sees us as a part of a larger society and in a way that means that we are morally affected and sometimes even morally culpable for the sins of that society. That all of Egypt is, in a sense, complicit with Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh is the kind of figurehead. Uh, that's challenging for us, but Scripture regularly assumes that the moral character of those in power is something that we all kind of have this burden for, and that judgment that falls on them often falls on nations as a whole. And we might not like that idea, but it is a reality that we need to recognize in Scripture. And that's actually why um, getting too attached to the systems of this world is always dangerous for us as Christians. While the Bible calls us to be in the world, it emphasizes there's a sense where we should be not of the world. And that in part is because, even though we as individuals might feel like we're fine, there is a real danger when we tie our horse, you know, when we, when we tie ourselves too closely to um, the powers of this world in their corruption. So that's part of the answer. And then zooming out, two more observations about this judgment on Egypt, on the firstborn. One is that God is working his good purposes, even in this judgment. He's not doing this out of spite, but because he's both working to deliver Israel and to save some in Egypt. And we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. But the last point about this judgment, and this is the hard one, but the most important one, and I don't know how to sugarcoat it, is that although we don't like to think this way, God has every right to do this sort of thing. We assume that life is something that we're owed in the world, that it's just kind of this default setting, um, that the universe is just set so that everyone's supposed to live to be 90 and be healthy and happy, and that whenever things veer off that course, that that's somehow not what we deserve, and it's terribly unfair. But scripture exists that every day of life is an undeserved gift. Here's how Isaiah introduces God in one of his prophecies. He says, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. So Isaiah says God made everything, right? In the past, he created the heavens and the earth, but also that God sustains everything, that in the present, the breath that we have, that I'm taking right now, that is a gift of God. It's not something that we would have without him. And in scripture, that means that God does have the right to take that away. And I know that is a hard thing to say. I, look, I say that as someone who personally wrestles with the gravity of that situation, right? As I watch my wife with terminal cancer, and I wrestle with God in that, and I argue with him in that. But the reality is that that is just part of what it means to worship a God who is greater than us and beyond us. 
um, the fact that that I have my wife right now is a gift of God, not something I'm owed. And if we have tomorrow, that is a gift of God. And it is right for us to long for safety and health and long life and to ask him for all of those things. And most of the time he gives it, right? That's one of the really remarkable things to recognize is that for all of us this morning, he chose to give us this gift. But he doesn't always. And when he doesn't, in the end, of, we do have to have the posture of humble creatures that come before him, recognizing that we rely on him for all things. So God's judgment, <laughs> that is, that is the, how this text begins, and that is hard. And we're going to move from that, but I just want to acknowledge that if you wrestle particularly with that hardness, I am happy to talk with you about that and, and visit more about it. But God's judgment in this passage is not just about some terrible things that happened, but it's actually a part of his victory. The final plague brings to completion this theme of God's victory over Egypt. The whole first 11 chapters of Exodus can be seen as this kind of contest, this battle between God and Egypt. That God is throwing down with Pharaoh as this ruler, and with Egypt as this great superpower, and even with the gods that Egypt worships. In fact, when God introduces this final plague in what we read last week, he says that he's doing it on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And that's important to remember when we read this story in Exodus, because the power of Pharaoh and Egypt and Egypt's gods, they stand in for something else in this story. They stand in for the powers of this world, the powers of human beings and of nations and the dark spiritual powers that are behind them. The Bible often views the universe in terms of this contest between God and those powers. So like here's how the Apostle Paul frames life. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Which is to say that our daily struggles with sin, or our struggles as a community, or the things you read about in the newspaper that are broken about the world, Scripture says that those things are not just what they are on the surface, but sees all of them as part part of this thing that it would call like the world. Or this age, this system of sin and rebellion against God. And that is what Egypt stands in for in our story. All the brokenness and all the dark powers of the world arrayed against the Lord. And so verse 31, we see then that they are defeated. Pharaoh faces this last plague, and it says, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. So Pharaoh admits defeat. And in a really striking way, if you've been paying attention to the details in the book so far. In the first place, Pharaoh has been very careful with Moses up to now to limit this discussion to Moses' initial request of like three days out in the wilderness. He always talks in those terms up until now, but now suddenly it's just like, go, get out of here, take your flocks and herds, and leave without any of those caveats. And he also calls them the people of Israel. I don't know if you remember when we discussed this, but in Exodus it seems there's two names for God's people. There's the Hebrews, and that is what 
people in Egypt called them. And it seems for the Egyptians it was maybe this almost derogatory racial slur. And then there's the Israelites. And up until now, only God and, you know, the Israelites have used that. And it's this kind of nationalistic name for them. It's asserting their independence. And this is the first and only time in Exodus where Pharaoh doesn't call them Hebrews. But instead calls them the Israelites, admitting that they are a people equal to Egypt. And most strikingly there at the end, and bless me also. I know some English translations put an exclamation mark there, but I don't think Pharaoh's sort of like excitedly saying it. I think what he's saying is, be gone and pray for me too. It's this final admission of defeat. Pharaoh, who remember, he pretends that he is a god, right? He is worshipped as a god, is finally forced to say that I am beaten. In fact, all of Egypt is defeated. They cannot take any more of God's judgments. And so they actually not just tell Israel to go, but hurry them on their way. In verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. And that signals a real change of heart. In fact, God has so triumphed that they actually pay the Israelites to leave. Moses had told the Israelites to ask their neighbors for silver and gold and other precious articles as they prepared. And we find out in verse 35 what happened. It says, The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord has given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. We need to just stop for a minute and feel the weight of all this, right? Because this, this is a story about another time and place, so I don't know that we always appreciate it. But Egypt, in this time and place, is the global superpower. They have a military that nobody can beat. They are richer than any other country on the face of the earth. Um, they, um, they have the best technology. And Israel, meanwhile, is powerless. They have been enslaved for centuries and totally disenfranchised. A few chapters ago, Pharaoh orders them to make straw without bricks, just messing with them. And there's nothing that the Israelites can do. But now God has moved, and the situation has completely changed. Every part of it. And every part of it is meant to highlight the supremacy of God in that victory. Pharaoh is not letting Israel go because Moses is a really persuasive guy, right? It's not that the Israelites are sort of... Uh, in unrest and threatening revolt, and so Pharaoh gets worried about it. He's being forced instead to acknowledge the greatness of the Lord, and it is that which compels him to let Israel go. In fact, if we can go back to verse 36, I love that image at the end of it. It says, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Normally, when you would plunder someone, it's because you went and fought a battle and beat them, and then you get to take their stuff. But here, the Israelites have done nothing, (laughs) They haven't done a thing, and they just go ask their neighbors. But God had moved so powerfully that in that way, they plundered Egypt. So God is victorious. How should that shape how we view the world? So it's common for a certain type of preacher to talk about victorious living. I don't know if you've ever heard preachers throw that around Certain guys just love to talk about how you need to live victoriously. And when you hear that, you should actually be kind of cautious because a lot of those people mean something other than what the Bible would picture. 
First, they tend to talk as if that power for victorious living is somehow about you or you just have that. That if you just believe it really hard and just really throw yourself into it, you know, you, that you are great and you are awesome, that that's somehow how you're going to find victory. It's like those cheesy kids movies where the power is inside you all along. And that is not how this story tells it, right? Israel is helpless in the face of Egypt. And in addition, that bad way of talking about victorious living tends to make that victory be about glorifying us, which is also why it's problematic. Being victorious means getting what we want and having a comfortable life and feeling really great about ourselves. And again, that's not how this story works. While Israel is blessed in this story, God is the one getting all of the glory in this story, right? They are benefiting simply as an act of his grace, but it's God who's doing everything and deserving of the praise. So we should be suspicious of that kind of talk. But we also shouldn't lose sight of the fact that from another angle, we should live victoriously. Because God has won the victory. Israel's bondage in Egypt uh, is a picture the Bible uses for our bondage. Satan is the great Pharaoh, and the rulers of this age are his advisors, and death and hell are the whips of our captivity, and sin wraps our hearts in chains. The Bible regularly uses that image of slavery and bondage to describe those things. And so what we see then in Jesus in Scripture is that God accomplishes his victory over those things in the same way that God here accomplishes his victory over Egypt. Here's how Jesus himself describes what's about to happen as he prepares for his crucifixion. He says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. God's judgment has fallen like the plagues. That great Pharaoh has been cast down from his throne. But here's the thing about that story and saying that that should cause us to feel a sense of victory in life. That victory is all about what God has done. Jesus has accomplished that. That in him the claim of sin is over. That sin seeks to wrap us up in guilt. The devil's regularly pictured as the accuser. um, The one who uses that guilt against us. But in the work of Jesus, that guilt is gone. That we now... It's been paid for on the cross, and all the blustering of the, the, the devil's accusations are just like that prosecutor after the verdict's been done, trying to complain and argue with it. And the power of sin over us is broken in Jesus, too. Yeah, we still have this enduring corruption, um, and we still wrestle with sin, but the Holy Spirit is at work in us, too, and he who begins a good work in us will be faithful to carry it on to completion. That God himself is moving To conquer the evil in our hearts. And we're just called to participate in that work. And the power of Satan and the evil of this world are beaten. They still rage. In fact, even in our story here in Exodus, Pharaoh is beaten, but he's not quite done. We're going to see in a couple chapters, he regrets letting Israel go and tries to ride out after them. And that's where he's finally defeated. But the decisive battle has been won in this text. And the decisive battle was won in Jesus. That they killed him, the political powers of Rome and Jerusalem, and the dark spiritual forces behind those events. They killed him, but in his resurrection, for the first time in history, their power did not have the last word. It's like 
the image I always have of this, and this is, I don't know if this is a good sermon image or not, but it's like in The Matrix. Have you guys, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Matrix, which I also realized while I was writing this, I might be dating myself <laughs> by saying that as well. But, but at the end of it, these forces of this computerized world, um, they, they kill the hero, right? They, they kill Neo, and he's laying on the ground, and he's dead, and they're walking away. And then there's this moment where you suddenly realize, like, oh, he's going to get back up again. <laughs> and he stands up, and in that moment, suddenly their power's broken, right? And they can't, they can't touch him anymore, because this whole system of power that they had is suddenly at an end. That is what the resurrection of Jesus is like in the world. That the whole world is going along this one way, in this one story, with this one system. And then suddenly, when it puts Jesus to death, unlike what has always happened, he stands back up again. And the whole story changes. The powers of this world rage, but they're helpless to touch the victory that God is working. They can't stop it, and they can't contain it. So God is victorious. And then this story would remind us then that it, because of that, we are called to experience freedom. It also speaks to us of our freedom. So back into the story in verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth. Again, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Again, that's so matter of fact, right? But you, a million, like well over a million people, right? Like traveling out of Egypt with their packs on their backs, setting off into the wilderness. And it goes on to say a mixed multitude goes out with them, which we'll talk about again in a minute. And then we get this summary of the whole first section of Exodus. Moses says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the host of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Two things strike me about that. And that really is sort of the, like, it happened set of verses in our passage. One is that this freedom took a long time. <laughs> um, our story at the beginning of Exodus, 80 years have passed since that. And it was 350 years before that that Israel was in Egypt. And that's an important reminder, because as we talk about victory and as we're going to talk about freedom, we are not talking about something that is instantaneous or easy. It's worth bearing that in mind in our world. We can say those things about God and about the triumph of his resurrection, but one of the reasons that we struggle to believe that is because God doesn't move on our timetable. The Apostle Peter makes that point in one of his letters. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. So when I struggle with some sin, right, I pray, Lord, help me with this, help me overcome this, and it doesn't happen today, and so I think, that's it, I've failed. But the reality is that the Lord does not work in a day, but over the course of a lifetime to grow us and um, change us. The person that I'm praying for, right? That, you know, that I'm, that I'm praying something for. And it doesn't happen. I can feel discouraged in that. But the work that God is doing may well be over the course of decades in that person's life. The fact that it doesn't move as quickly as we would like does not mean that God is not moving. Or I think about our world. People, we live in this age of constant um, immediacy. 
that everything is about right now, right? It's this news story that happened today or this tweet or this, you know, this election. It's, it's all about the present, and we have this sense that the whole world is going to rise and fall based on what's happening right now. We invest so much in that. But God is playing the long game in history and always has been. I mean, I just think about like 2,000 years ago, Jesus dies, and there's maybe a couple hundred Christians. And now, you know, maybe it might have been the size of our church, right? (laughs) The whole initial church. And now there are two billion people who claim the name of Christ in the world. I was going to make a graphic to show that change on the screen, but I couldn't do it because you couldn't even see the little dot, right, for the, for the initial size of the church compared to that two billion. Um, God worked that. It's just that he's taken 2,000 years to do it. Or you want to think about it like this. The gospel has spread in remarkable ways, but scripture would also tell us to expect that to continue. And maybe Jesus will come back tomorrow And maybe it will be another 2,000 years. But if it is that 2,000 years, it's worth just imagining what the world would look like, right? With that same pattern continued. Let me just just use one thought experiment. Um, I I got Danny's permission to mention this, but I was talking with the Schaefers, which many of you know, they're missionaries we support here at Kish, and they minister um, largely to Palestinian Muslims. And one of the things that you know, we were, I was asking them about was that I know it's challenging often in American churches to do that sort of thing because a lot of Americans are really scared of Muslims and they have the sense that that is an impossible calling, right? People wonder, why would you minister to them? Isn't that a waste of time or hopeless? But over and over, the history of God's work in the world lends the lie to that kind of thinking. So just think like if Jesus tarries long enough, and I'm not talking like 2,000 years, like It is entirely plausible in a hundred years or whatever he chooses that this would be the case. That we should fully expect that the gospel would bear fruit there. And that we would live in a world where the zeal and discipline of people that, you know, currently live in the Middle East and are Muslims would be gifts to the church. And that Arab missionaries would go to Europe's secular shores, to American shores, and minister and build up the church there. If that seems impossible, that is how God works. Actually, that kind of thing is already happening. Not exactly there, but, you know, a hundred years ago, Europe was sending missionaries to Africa and Asia, and today, thousands of missionaries are coming from Africa and Asia to Europe, right? Like, God moves in those ways. That's the story of history, that God is bringing his people out of bondage and building up the church. We get that here in Exodus, too. Um, In verse 38, we see that a lot of Egyptians and other people in Egypt live with Israel. It says, a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So when we're picturing those Israelites leaving, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Egyptians have seen the Lord move and are coming out with them. And in case there's any doubt about that, Israel is actually then instructed how to incorporate these people into God's people. So Moses first says that if there's foreigners living among you and they're not willing to join the people of God, they shouldn't take the Passover. But then he goes on to say... Um, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, which is the way that they would mark their entrance into God's people, like baptism for us. They're to join God's people, and then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. So God's anticipating, right, all these people coming into Israel there. That's the story we're still in. 
to bring that part full circle, it's a story happening on God's timetable. Israel is in Egypt for 430 years before they're brought out. A thousand years ago, the church was this kind of beleaguered group of people in northern Africa and Central Asia and Europe. And a thousand years from now, if Jesus tarries, people will probably talk about our time in that same way. Back in verse 40, while all of this then reminds us of that fact that we need to be patient, and that's part of what, you know, we recognize from that, I think we also see a reminder that there is a finality to God's deliverance. There is a real finality in this moment to the fact that even though there's 430 years before it, and even though there's going to be 40 years in the wilderness after this, that in this moment God really has accomplished something as well. Moses tells us, summarizing this work of the Exodus, that it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So there's that process of God's deliverance, but there's also a sense that in this moment, something fundamentally changed for Israel. That before this night, they were slaves in Egypt, and now they are free. There is a lot of waiting and process in Christianity, but it is also true that something definitive has happened to us when Jesus worked on our behalf and when we became Christians. The victory of God has been applied to us in that. And we, like Israel, even though we're in the process, have also truly been set free. That idea of freedom is shot through Scripture. Take for example, Jesus' own words. He says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Or the Apostle Paul, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is true freedom. Just like Israel, if you are a Christian, you have been set free. But we also need to make sure that we understand what that means. I think when we hear the Bible talk about freedom, we get confused because we have a problematic definition of freedom. We think that freedom means being able to do whatever we want. I think if you ask someone to define freedom, that's how they would define it. And that's not the Bible's definition. So, for example, Paul in Romans 6 is discussing our freedom. And he says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So we're free, but he says, in that freedom, don't sin. Instead, he goes on to say, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. So being a Christian means being free and also somehow being a slave to righteousness. Well, how does that work? Like we said, it's about what we mean by freedom. There's actually two ways to define freedom. One way is, as we said it, it's being free to do anything you want. But the problem with that definition is that it can actually lead us to be less free. Here's what I mean. Let's, let me just use an example from our world. There are a lot of laws in our country, a lot of laws. And we might feel like every law is ne- necessarily curtailing our freedom, right? If we use that first definition, it kind of is. Every law is saying, here's a thing you can't do. But... 
imagine a world where, like, say there are no traffic laws, right? Imagine a world where, you know, where there's no speed limit, no side of the road you have to drive on, no stop signs, you know, nothing like that. In one sense, we are more free in that world, right? But in another sense, we're actually less free because we are less free to go to the places we want to go, right? Uh, You know, I mean, I'm I'm taking my life into my hands in that world, just trying to drive to the store or even walk on the sidewalk in case someone decides it's a passing lane. I mean, in that world, while I am more free to do what I want, I am less able to become the thing that I desire to be. The other definition of freedom is that freedom is freedom to realize our potential. Or in scripture, it is freedom to become what we were created to be. There are things that we might freely choose in the first sense that actually destroy our ability to become what we were created to be. So in scripture, freedom means being free to be who God made us. And that does not mean that we get to do anything we want. There are commandments God gives and calls us to obey. But the purpose of those commandments is to make us free in the second sense. To set us free from the bondage of sin. Sin looks appealing and enticing, but it actually enslaves us and keeps us from becoming this creature that God made us to be. We actually glimpse that reality of freedom and obedience being linked in this passage. Israel's obedience and their deliverance from bondage are viewed together. So if you see in the last few verses, it says, All the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. That Israel's freedom is actually tied to the fact that they're following God. So here's the question that all of that leaves me with, which is simply, are we acknowledging and seeking that kind of freedom? Are we acknowledging that we have and seeking after that kind of freedom? First, are we acknowledging that in Jesus Christ we have it? It is easy to pretend like we are still slaves, to have our hearts turn back towards Egypt with longing for the kind of comforts that it provided, to have our fear hold us prisoner and think that we have not escaped. And if you are in Jesus Christ, what you need to recognize is that the definitive exodus has happened in your life, that God has delivered you from bondage in Egypt, that it was accomplished for you by Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and it is applied to you when you first put your faith in him, and that in that sense we truly are set free from the sin that ensnares us. But then the second question we have to ask is, are we seeking to live into that freedom? God has created us, each of us, to do beautiful and significant things with our lives for his kingdom, to have hearts of joy and hope, that are not bound by these idols or stuck in these petty, selfish ways of living, but that are instead poured out for the world, doing significant and meaningful things, to live in a way that blesses and grows people. And the way we pursue that kind of freedom, becoming that kind of creature, is by following Jesus and seeking to live out his calling in our lives. We will do that imperfectly, absolutely, but our calling is to seek that And the more that we do that, then to become more and more the creatures that we were created to be. So that is the story in many ways um, of the exodus itself. And as I reflect on all of that, 
and as I reflect on the fact that we're about to come to the table, the thought I had in closing that I kept reflecting on was how much this table speaks to us a story of that freedom. It proclaims, first of all, the victory of God over what would hold us captive. It acts out those events that led to Satan's defeat. That in this bread and cup, when Jesus speaks of his death, he is inviting us to come and eat of it. And that, in many ways, is speaking to us of the life that we now have. That as Christ's body and blood are broken and poured out for us, we are made alive and set free from our bondage. But it also speaks to us as a meal that sustains us of the wrong and right ways that we can view our freedom. I mean, food and drink, having to eat and (laughs) drink, that is actually one of the simplest things in life that tells us that thinking we can do anything we want is what freedom boils down to. Because if you freely decide not to do those things, you're not going to be free for very long. But in obeying this reality, we actually find the freedom to be who we were made to be. That what Jesus invites us to is a meal which speaks to us of our dependence, but it is a meal that also nourishes us as we walk forward in obedience to him. That at the table we are actually being fed and nourished so that we might seek to pursue God's calling in our lives and live into the freedom that he invites us into. So as we prepare our hearts to come to that table now, let's um, recite together the words of the Apostles' Creed, which is this declaration of our hope for the victory that God has won in Jesus Christ. 